Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and after a quick-fire run of six races in seven weeks, the Formula One world is having a quick week off before heading into another triple header at Spa, Monza and Mugello. But even in the gaps, there's been a huge amount going on, with a new Concord agreement signed, Williams sold, and the ongoing rumblings in the driver market to keep on top of. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me today are Scott Mitchell and Val Harunji. Scott, hello. You're looking delighted in your socialist paradise in, uh, in Stockholm. How's life? Oh, uh, socialist paradise. Uh, I assume that's a reference to the brief conversation we had in the build-up to this podcast where I was making use of Stockholm's excellent public transport system to to get back in time for the start, which I failed to do because we are actually recording this slightly later than we're meant to be. That's the beauty of podcasts. You can listen to them when you want. You can record them when you want within within reason. So uh, I, I'll, I'll let you off. But I'm not really sure how you could be late with the excellent public transport system the public transport system is fantastic and it can uh, it, it it's 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 very very useful but what and even the most excellent and organized of public transport systems can't make amends for a fundamentally disorganized and chaotic person so the the public transport system did its part i was the i was the weak link well, talking of fundamentally disorganised people, we've got Val. And weak links. <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, we've got Val making one of his occasional appearances. He's brandishing his F1 radar, as usual, which will come in handy later on in this uh, in this podcast. Uh, but you're, you're in a, a communist paradise in Moscow, of course. Ah, that's that's a very politically charged statement, that, <laughs> calling it a communist paradise. If, if you want, I can do a whole political science degree thing on what the regime is here. But let's stick to communist paradise. Also, is the F1 radar supposed to be like an item? Is it like a, a police radar type thing? Because I thought it was like a like a military radar. Yeah, we we sent it to you. You should have received it. My guess is if we'd sent something that was uh, anything like a radar and could be interpreted as a military item, and we tried to send that to Russia, I would imagine that one that that got intercepted, and two that the police are on their way to Val's place right now. I've got some pretty cool stuff in in the mail from overseas recently. A Mason Mount shirt. You're not you're not helping <laughs> your case, Val. <laughs> that, that's, they're, they're listening. That sounds so sinister. <laughs> I've got some very interesting items. So yeah, basically, Val is a is a very cheap, badly written movie villain today, ordering all sorts of interesting items. But uh, yeah, his uh, his F1 radar, which you may have heard a few episodes ago, where he keeps an eye on some of those on the path to F1, will be brandished later. But first, we're going to start talking about some of the other things going on. So Scott, the big political step that has been taken is everyone signing up to the new Concord that covers 2021 to 2025 promises that it paves the way for a more equitable F1 create a more level playing field sounds optimistic it's, it's F1's own socialist paradise <laughs> um yeah it does sound optimistic and I think if you look back to uh do you remember in Bahrain 2018 when all of the the, the big vi- the, the big details for F1 one's grand vision under Liberty Media first sort of uh, was made public um, to the teams and also to, to to the media. There were quite a lot of elements of that that sounded very optimistic. And it's like, yeah, this is all great on paper, but there's no way you're actually going to turn it into reality. Um, and actually, here we are, despite all of the 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 compromises and, and complications of the pandemic that we've been through. And F1's not only 
preparing now for a new era with a budget cap and and all of this they've managed to reduce the budget cap within the the pandemic and it's going to get lower but now this concord agreement is really important because they've got all 10 teams signed up which i think is is encouraging for uh, mercedes but it's also encouraging for a team like Haas, for example where the question was all right how much is this uh, team going to commit to the future there's a there's a suggestion that teams now that they're signed up to the Concord Agreement, they don't have to see it out to the end. So there is one suggestion is that as long as you give enough notice, you could withdraw from the following season. So I don't think this should be taken as a fundamental, full-on Haas commitment for the next five seasons. Uh, but it's more encouraging than them holding out because Gene doesn't know whether or not he wants to continue. Uh, but then more fundamentally, apart from the fact that we've got this unity, it's the the devil's in the detail because this is Formula One. And it just it, it nudges Formula away from a, just a fundamentally damaging, who's Bernie Eccleston's best mate at the moment? Oh, let's give them a bunch of money. Uh, that kind of system that just made the rich richer uh, and it just uh, it just furthered the baked-in advantage, or well, it established a baked-in advantage for the biggest teams. It just meant that they were pretty much impregnable financially, and when you're impregnable financially in Formula One, you're you're pretty dominant on track. So the the, the way it's going to work now is the the, the all the teams are going to have effectively a bigger slice of the pie, but the 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 individual slices are going to be a bit more even, shall we say? There's not going to be three teams splitting half of the pie and the rest fighting over the, the the rest. There's still going to be a bit more of a weighting towards the biggest teams, the historically the most successful teams and the, the most successful teams going forward. But like for like, if you finish ninth or 10th in the championship now, you're going to get more money for it. So it's generally a much more better level playing field for Formula One and the teams. And of course, it sort of shores up the value of the teams as well, which is also one of the reasons why, for example, Haas, even if they don't want to continue, will have signed up. So they preserve the value uh, of the team. So we'll keep an eye on, on where Haas is going and whether they want to uh, want to keep going as that will evolve over, over time. But we do have a Formula One team sold, and that's Williams. Now, that's been bought by New York-based private investment firm Doralton Capital. That's 152 million euros worth of Formula One teams. Just before we get onto the details, just in general, Val, how good is it to, to have Williams financially shored up and to know that the Williams name, one of the great ones in Formula One, is going to remain uh, competing? No, it's very good, and it's 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 sort of it's part of this new revised Liberty model that ensures that teams that might be struggling a bit don't just go under and go away forever. That people come in and they make use of the existing um, the existing resources and the established. Uh, equipment, etc., that has already guaranteed a certain performance level. And Williams this season has been a very useful participant on the F1 grid. They don't have points on the board yet anymore, but they certainly are not light years adrift the way they were last year. And the fact that they will be able to continue this upward curve, if it is an upward curve, we don't know, obviously, but it, it looks that way right now, without the threat of going under with the added financial security, I think that's that's really good. And picking up on what Val said about encouraging people to, to to make use, I guess, of existing assets. So I think one of the one of the important things from the Williams announcement was how quick and keen they were to stress that the brand's not going anywhere and they don't want to. They know there are no plans to relocate from Grove. So it's an end of an era from an F1 perspective because there's no. This is this was the last of the you know it's the last of the family owned owned teams, and I think it also it also means that there's no actual uk ownership right in in formula one so there's what seven british based teams but none of them have british owners now so that's a a sign of how uh let's say multinational formula one has become i think it's also a sign of where the money is <laughs> as much as anything else but um actually committing to the williams name i think is a, a really important because if the if the main people still stay on in terms of the fundamental operation of the team and the day-to-day of the team it is still williams this isn't um it isn't like jordan becoming spiker or midland or whichever way around that disaster worked um and it's it's not quite force india becoming racing point either so you do have the 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 money comes from somewhere else and the the ownership of the organization does change hands but this will still be williams and it's you know how so many people even like lewis hamilton whenever he refers to racing point accidentally calls them force india because really that team is 
what it is that there's no identity crisis here and for a team like Williams a, a brand that's been on the grid for what 42 43 years it's one of the most successful in history a world champion winning team uh, a world champion team it's it's just it's good because the the, the name's not just going to stick around for the sake of sticking around I don't think I think it is a I think it is a genuine I'm actually a bit surprised that Williams have got what they've got out of this because they've basically got the investment but they're keeping the name uh, I guess they've lost a bit of fundamental power obviously who knows if the likes of uh, like Michael Driscoll and Claire Williams are actually going to stick around but this does genuinely seem like they've managed to get everything they could possibly have got out of the deal. For what it's worth, I should say that obviously it's important to preach a bit of caution right now because the new owners are saying all the right things in the initial announcement. But obviously, if you look at the world of football or the world of other sports, there are quite a few sporting organizations that have private equity owners and don't exactly love them very much. So this could all still go totally wrong. But the, the initial early signs for what they are, I agree, are, are encouraging. Yeah, the key is key is what they do. This company makes a, a big play of the fact that it, it likes to look longer term and for stability, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It doesn't like to be too interventionalist, although obviously they will they will put a representative, I'm sure, on the on on the board. But we'll see exactly how much they they change at Williams. I think the key is that they don't expect things to turn around in a second, as it were, because sometimes owners expect a big change. But they've got a, a team, they know roughly what the cost of doing business will be thanks to the, the cost cap. And if they take a, a genuinely long-term view, this might be Williams's best chance at, at getting back towards initially midfield decency. And hope, hopefully, as everyone everyone's, who's a fan of Formula 1, even if you're not specifically a fan of Williams, you want to see that team back up there because that's where it belongs. Up until now, you would think that for an investment you know, a, a private investment company buying an F1 team would be madness. Like that, those companies exist to to turn money into more money, and you don't want to go anywhere near Formula One if that's the objective. But I think it's a it's an indication of what Williams offers, and also what Formula One's becoming. That they do see that as a as a genuine thing, because this isn't a company, this isn't a white knight swooping in to save Williams because it's a team that needs to be saved, is it? It's a group of it's a group of individuals, it's a company that exists to, to, to make money. It's not doing this because it's a charity. So there will be an idea of, uh, of making it investment. And so sort of combining the two topics that we've spoken so far with the, with the newly signed Concord Agreement, which Williams is unsurprisingly massively, massively a fan of because they'll still keep a little bit of a, of a bonus because of their, their heritage. So they'll get a bit of pumped up money from that. They'll get a bit of pumped up money uh, from just teams getting a fairer, fair uh, shake of it further down the field so even if they finish 10th again they'll get more money than they've done before Uh, and then they'll have opposition that's being forced to half their budget or slash 50 million from their budget and maybe with a bit of money from 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 the new owners they'll be able to get closer to the budget cap than than they would otherwise be able to operate at so this is a, a genuinely exciting opportunity if they don't trip up and cause more problems and as you said Ed expect too much too soon and start trying to change things and all and all of this if their positive words turn into positive actions this is a team that can improve on track make more of the fact that there's going to be more money available for the teams that do better on track and it just becomes this much more positive cycle for Williams to get to, to get involved in as opposed to the negative one that they've been trapped in for so long and has done so much damage to them in terms of revenue where the worse you do the less money you get you can't get sponsors in other teams are still spending 50 100 150 200 million dollars a year more than you and it just moves everything away from that so from a race team point of view and from someone looking to buy this is the perfect opportunity now is a really promising opportunity for those kinds of parties and the, the most positive thing for Formula One is that there was more than one entity that made a serious bid for the, for this team. So that's particularly encouraging. And that could be encouraging for any other team that may want to uh, to sell up. Obviously, we're interested to see what happens with uh, with Haas. But that, that's, a, that's at least the first 
kind of big tick for the new Concord, isn't it? Because it's no coincidence that Concord was signed, then this went through, because it had to be contingent on that uh, on that new structure and that new commercial agreement uh, existing. Uh, well, let's have a little bit of a look more at things that will impact life on track and have a look at the driver market. We had this flurry of activity with some of the big moves over the, the lockdown period, but We've still got a lot of uncertainty. Four teams have got their lineup confirmed. Ferrari have got Charles Leclerc, Carlos Sainz, McLaren with Daniel Ricciardo, Lando Norris, Renault with Esteban Ocon and Fernando Alonso, and Williams, assuming nothing changes there, and we've had no indication it will, George Russell and Nicholas Latifi. Now, Scott, Mercedes is conspicuous by its absence on that list. We know Valtteri Bottas has got another year, but what's going on with this long-anticipated Lewis Hamilton deal? Well, the last we've heard directly from Lewis and Mercedes on this is is pretty much the same as we've heard for months, which is that it's a formality. It just comes down to actually finding time to to have the conversation. I mean, Lewis dropped like the biggest indicator of what his next move is uh, over, I think it was the British Grand Prix weekend, the first of the Silverstone races, where he said he sees himself being in Formula One for at least another three years. So I think we can take that to mean... Um, He's just going to have a sort of similar Merck agreement to what he's had before. It will take him through to the new era of, of cars. So it will cover 21, 22. And then I presume if he wants a three-year deal, it's sort of like a two plus one kind of thing and see how the first year of the new technical rules go. Maybe he'll want to do two full seasons with the new car and then and then head into retirement. Maybe he'll want to continue. Not sure. Um, it is sort of... It, it, the assumption always is that this is sort of linked with Toto Wolff's future because... Wolf is what has Wolf is the person who has made Mercedes what it is and he has a very good relationship with Hamilton. And we have seen this sort of shift in dynamic within Mercedes since the the change of Daimler Chiefs um when uh, Ola Kalenius came in. And Wolf's always tried to play down talk of a rift between him and Kalenius and said that he wants to continue. But the but the feeling is that, that Toto won't continue in his sort of day-to-day team principal role that he's had up until now. Maybe he'll be sort of elevated, I don't know, to let's say managing director of the team role, that kind of thing, and then um, remove some of the day-to-day burden. But if that happens, I can't see it really making an impact on Lewis because what else can Lewis do? There's nowhere else for him to go. Mercedes is clearly the best option. He's almost certainly going to match Michael Schumacher for seven world titles this year. He's almost certainly going to have a standalone victory record by the end of this season. And there's no reason for that not to continue next year. So he's going to become the most successful driver statistically in F1 history with Mercedes. I can't see it changing. I think it is literally just a case of whenever one of these gaps emerges and Hamilton feels like having the conversation, he will have the conversation. It's, uh, he, he always has the leverage in, the, in this sort of thing because of who he is, his appeal, his, his ability. But with Red Bull obviously ne- not really being something that's open to him and with Ferrari c- uh, confirming Leclerc and signs, like there's, there's just no other alternative, is there? So it's kind of just this weird holding pattern until they actually decide to pull out a, a, a pen and paper and actually sign something. And I think from a logical point of view, Mercedes would not have signed up and confirmed Bottas were it not for the fact that that they expect to, to keep Hamilton. There does seem to be some reluctance as well on Hamilton's part to have a what's going to be a very expensive deal announced in these uh, these difficult times. Although I don't think uh, much is going to much is going to change quickly enough, sadly, to to make that uh, any less of a clash. But anyway, it, it's a logical move for all sides, and I'm sure that deal will allow Hamilton to to get the the eighth world title and. and so up all the records. Uh, Val, let's move on to Red Bull. We've talked plenty about Alex Albon's struggles this year. What have you made of what you've seen from him? Red Bull hasn't confirmed he's staying on board for, for next year yet. And obviously there's always endless complications with, with Red Bull's driver stable, with AlphaTauri and all the all the junior single-seater drivers uh, battling on the outside to try and get onto the, onto the F1 grid. Yeah, I mean, the reason Red Bull hasn't confirmed him, I think it's pretty obvious. It's because he hasn't really kicked on compared to last year because so far I think it's pretty clear to say disappointingly because I really 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 like Alex but disappointingly it's it's just not been a good season at all and ultimately it it hasn't been that different to the Pierre Gasly half season that got Gasly demoted back to Toro Rosso slash Alfa Tori last season um yeah, there's a big temptation to compare the two and to to wonder if they're both leading to the same outcome 
Uh, there are obviously things that Red Bull likes more about Albon than about Gasly. I think probably grace under pressure would be one and maybe sort of the fighting spirit in races because we'd see Gasly get stuck in the in the among worse cars in races last year when he was suffering at Red Bull and with Albon it's less of a case I would argue right now but the pace has not been great ultimately there's a built-in deficit to Verstappen that was there from the very beginning of his Red Bull stint and hasn't really changed all that much from my perception and um, ultimately I, I don't see how they can confirm him right now if that deficit doesn't begin to decrease because I mean, you can't have that right now he is a part of the F1 midfield and Verstappen is not and looking at the results he has not finished top of that F1 midfield since the Red Bull ring. I think with, with, with Alex, the a big problem is that he just hasn't he hasn't yet put together an entire weekend. That has been. I think what he needs is he needs one weekend where everything goes the way it should. And even though he was still slow, that is what the Spanish Grand Prix should have been. You know, he should have he should have come out of turn one fifth. Really, he should have had quite an easy run to at least a top six finish and probably fourth. And he wouldn't have got lapped by Verstappen. It would have been a much more straightforward race, but as it was, sort of the circumstances of the first lap and then strategy played against him. And then that, so that meant that a slightly more encouraging Saturday turned into a yet another frustrating Sunday. And what he needs is he just needs to, to, to put it together because with just a few small changes to how his weekends have gone, he could have a completely different set of results so far. He could have a, a podium from the first Austrian weekend and just generally better um just generally better results on the board and i don't think we'd be talking about him now um it's really fine margins i think that are de- de- defining um albon's reputation at the moment and then as val sort of touched on i don't really think that was the case with pierre last year i think pierre was just like emphatically bad there wasn't really any kind of like redeeming element to his red bull season to 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 be honest and i i really like pierre he's doing an amazing job now back at uh I'm just going to say what was Toro Rosso because I hate the new name. Um, and he's he he is doing he is doing a very good job. But as for the reasons Val touched on with sort of like why Red Bull like Alex a bit more, I actually think that he ha- he still does have quite a bit of time on his side. And I think he's boosted by the fact that the biggest threat within the Red Bull stable, and I'll let Val sort of talk about this more because he is obviously Mr. Junior category. But I feel like the biggest threat within the Red Bull stable is Val's countryman's seat rather than one of the seats in the senior team at the moment. I think uh, just before we, we get onto that with Val, just I, th- I think the one key thing on, on Red Bull is they have to decide what their overall strategy is. From my perspective, if they want to continue to have a Red Bull driver in the second Red Bull seat rather than bringing in an outsider, they've got to decide what, what they're going to do. Ultimately, Kvyat's being outperformed by by Gasly comprehensively, so it's not going to be him. I think Gasly, as Val alluded to, with uh, the way he responded last year, has got a few marks against him superbly as Gasly's driving this year. So I actually think the choice for Red Bull is do they stick with, with Albon? And in that case, maybe will they benefit from confirming him fairly shortly just to give him that stability and say, right, now you've got another year, you can just work through it. Or do they say, actually, we haven't got the driver in our stable that can that can get to the right level against Verstappen who's a really tough teammate and then they look outside and they bring in a, a kind of placeholder driver for a year or two say a Nico Hulkenberg but that that's the the key decision I think they've got but now I think we can let Val explain a little bit the slightly complicated landscape with the uh, the Red Bull juniors knocking on the door. Uh, yeah just to inter- interject before that the, the Hulkenberg if if they were to do the Hulkenberg thing and dem- demote Albon to AlphaTauri alongside Gasly I think it would it would help answer a pertinent question about Red Bull, because the way it's looked, we've had Verstappen comprehensively outperform Gasly, and Gasly be in the midfield and fight the Toro Rosso's last year. Now we have Verstappen comprehensively outperform Albon, and Albon fight the AlphaTauri's this year. So it raises the question of whether there's something fundamental going on at Red Bull with the second car, or whether, and you know, this this also is, I guess, a potential theory. Whether Verstappen is that good, and the car is being flattered by him, and I think bringing in an outside person could could help him answer that question. 
but in in in, in t- that would carry the problem of them not being able to promote any juniors and obviously Red Bull likes to bring new faces into F1 it's kind of their MO so looking at the two obvious candidates they have right now on the cusp of Formula 1 that'll be uh, Yuri Vips and Yuki Tsunoda and they've had very contrasting uh, junior seasons so far Vips's has it's not really gotten off the ground he's one of the guys who's been most hurt by uh, COVID-19 Probably should rephrase that because obviously being hurt by COVID-19 <laughs> carries a different connotation. But I mean, career-wise, uh, because he's going to miss the Super Formula opener in Japan due to travel restrictions. He's going to, um, so he's going to come in instead of Sean Galil, the injured Sean Galil in Dams in Formula 2. But obviously he's only getting a part season there, so that's not going to be a bit for Super License points. And he is doing a campaign in Formula Regional European, which is the F3 level series, which ostensibly to me is a bid for super points, uh, super license points. But the problem there is that that's a series dominated by Prema. There are uh, four Prema cars. Vips is not in one of them. Um, and it, it going by the first weekend that he had, he had a collision with the Prema of Arthur Leclerc, Charles' brother. And he did not put a lot of points on the board. He needs to finish in the top two in that championship, which would definitely mean doing every round and focusing on that campaign. And even then, might be a tall order. So the, the big problem for Vips is I'm, I'm not sure he clears the super license threshold this year. And that, that, that that's a huge problem. I wonder if the FIA would consider some sort of mitigation of that 40 points limit because of COVID-19. But that's, that's just pure speculation. I, I have no idea. And I... I can imagine they're not really thinking about that right now. Uh, Tsunoda, uh, Tsunoda has been has been very good in in Formula Two as a rookie. It's been a good year for Formula Two rookies, and Tsunoda has been one of the standouts. Um, he's at Carlin alongside another rookie, Jahan Daruvala, and he's been he's been their team leader. He's fourth in the standings, although it's all very jumbled up in that bit of the the standings and I uh, super license points are always a little bit weird you're never quite sure how many a driver is on but I believe Tenoda needs a top four or a top five finish in F2 to to clear the 40 point super license threshold not 100% sure on that but it's it, I think it's going to be a 50 50 but he's been doing really well so far and I think the second he makes that super license threshold uh, Red Bull will gladly place him in AlphaTauri because also he's a Honda protege and to keep Honda sweet and because he'll have deserved it, because he's been very impressive. Yeah, certainly uh, both of those things are very much in his favourites. It shows how how sometimes the, the, the way the super licence points are structured, it's a system I like fundamentally, but I'm not entirely sure it's quite... It quite works in terms of uh, in terms of what it's what it's recognising. I'd actually like to see maybe a system that's a little bit more based on wins in certain categories, should we say. So if you're someone like Yuri Vips and you've shown you can win in serious categories because he's just been stitched up this year yeah, lo- losing basically the shot at super formula through no fault of his own that you know even in formula regional like you say with kick motorsport he's got very little chance i guess if he ha- if he was stellar in f2 somehow he, he could uh, nip into the top 10 but uh, that that championship particularly with the uh, esoteric qualities of the tyres, is going to make it very very uh, very difficult so this is actually quite an interesting situation for for red bull and it does probably create an opening for potentially looking at going outside the system even if they want someone for for alpha tauri assuming where everything is what what would you be doing val let's say vips and Tenoda are locked out on super license points if you're helmet marco what would your decision be on the overall the, the four red bull seats that's a oh, that's a very tough one because honestly um i promote Tenoda and i keep honda sweet but that's it's a very difficult decision because honestly I'm not entirely sure Kvat deserves dropping, and this this has nothing to do with my nationality or anything. There's no kind of national bias. He's been comprehensively beaten by Gasly in qualifying, but in race trim he looks really good, and he's, he's looked really good in race trim for for a good part of his F1 career ever since the uh, since the Red Bull demotion. Like he he can make alternate strategies work. He's always got pretty good race pace. He's a guy who I think, even though he's going under the radar, and even though he's one lap pace, something needs addressing there. I think he he still has something to contribute to Formula One. Maybe that should be outside of Alpha Tauri. I'm 
maybe not sure what the point of him being there is, because I think it's pretty clear that Red Bull don't see him back in the main team. But I, I would it would be a bit regrettable if this was the end of his the end of his F1 career. That said, I would promote Yuki Tsunoda. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think I'm marginally more impressed with Tsunoda than with Vips. Vips is a very good driver, but Tsunoda, given his relative lack of European racing experience compared to Vips and just how well he's looking as a rookie in Formula 2 and the Honda ties, I think he's a great candidate. But also, I'd seriously look at bringing in Nico Hulkenberg at Red Bull. And if that's the case, then Gasly and Albon are a great Alpha Tauri partnership. I think you make a fair point about Kvyat's race pace, but you know that that qualifying needs to be fixed because he's three tenths off, and that's as Albon's showing. You can do whatever you want in the race, but you know if if your if your grid position is is three, four, five places below where it should be, you're you're limiting your your overall potential. Scott, just quickly before we we move on, what what are you doing if you're in charge of uh, of Red Bull within the realms of what's realistic with super license points? Um. I would be seriously looking at um, putting Sonoda in uh, AlphaTauri in place of uh, in place of Kvyat. Yeah, I think um, I think I'd probably stick with Albon at this stage. I think they've um, I think they're clearly trying to back that horse. I think they've, they've I think they've learned their lesson from how they handled Gasly last year because they have made that race engineer change. Um, my guess is that Albon has shown them enough to basically confirm that it wasn't just Gasly last year. And, you know, I, I knew uh, I, I, I knew Mike Lug from um, from Formula E. Uh, I knew him a little bit. He was Sam Bird's race engineer, and and he was really highly rated. I think he did a really good job. But I think you just you're coming into a top Formula 1 team is a very difficult environment, um, didn't have the experience. And we've already seen with Simon Rennie and, and, and Alex, there, there's a bit more of a calm dynamic there. I think it is bringing a bit more out of Albon. So I just think you're not going to gain anything for the second car, keep chopping and changing. So I'd probably just stick with Albon alongside Verstappen. And, you know, there's a few things I do quite like about Kvyat, but I think I'd flick him and, and put Sonoda in. That's a junior team. The idea is to, to, to build proper drivers for the future. Gasly looks like he's sort of rebuilding his reputation. I reckon that would be quite a nice little dynamic there. A Gasly sort of, you know, probably next year, 2021, last chance to really show Red Bull what he's made of. Sonoda alongside him, a hungry rookie. I think that's a fantastic lineup for, for a junior team. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree. Also in terms of, of Albon, and I, I quite like them to get that that kind of done and dusted and confirmed fairly shortly. Maybe they're waiting for him to have a, a breakthrough weekend and get a podium or something just to uh, to be able to do that. Well, let's quickly move on to a situation we've talked about before, Scott, the, the Vettel Racing Point slash Aston Martin thing. That possibility is still there. Where does that deal stand at the moment? What are we waiting for? <laughs> um, we're waiting for a straight and naturally honest answer from most of the parties involved. That would be quite nice. There's plenty of speculation. Some people were adamant that the deal was done and it was going to be announced before Silverstone. I don't remember that happening. Um, and now the same people are saying, oh, no, it wasn't Silverstone. It was for Spa, so it's going to be announced at Spa. Um, I don't think Vettel's in a rush. I think Racing Point know what they're going to lose if they've been off Perez to make way for him. I think Stroll put in such a good performance in Spain that that would have basically vindicated both him and his father for keeping him in the seat. And I think Vettel's general sort of lethargy and the tension at Ferrari, which him and Ferrari absolutely denies there, I, I don't really think Vettel's made the strongest case for it for himself. So I actually think that situation is more complicated now than it was a few weeks ago because I think the current incumbents of, uh, at that team have uh, proven why they should be given a chance. Uh, I think the likes of Hulkenberg stepping in uh, at Silverstone and showing what he's capable of has just reminded everybody that there's another person outside that's uh, worth considering and I don't think you know on any given weekend Vettel can basically shift between first and fourth choice really but depending on the criteria you're looking at so I don't think that's personally anywhere near near resolved um, I suspect every party would like to give it get as much time as possible so you I think racing point would want as much data as possible to see if something like Spain is a one-off for stroll or if that's indicative of the level he can be at. Uh, I guess they've got to drill down into whether or not um, Perez is ultimately a better option than than, than Vettel. Uh, there's been no indication from the team at all about um, 
any kind of developments and what's going to happen there. So I do, I think on that one, similar to Hamilton and Mercedes, you kind of have to wait and see, but for very, very different reasons. This, I don't think this is a, a clear cut call whatsoever. Yeah, and certainly Stroll's performances have been have been interesting. You know, I've I've been critical of Stroll's position and the idea that they could bring Vettel in and flick Perez over Stroll. I still think if you were to bring Vettel in, you'd have to take Perez over Stroll on on Marriott. Although if if Stroll can keep consistently performing decently, that then his case becomes uh, becomes stronger. But I guess it's the key question for Racing Point is whether they feel that it's not just a question of performance with Vettel, but it's also a question of what that experience of top teams of 10 years fighting for championships and consistent race wins, what benefit you can get from that if you plug it into your team. And I think there's no doubt Vettel will be motivated if he chooses to go there. But I wonder whether, you know, Vettel said he's still thinking about it. Everything Last, last he said about it, he said nothing's changed. Everything's still on the table, including that option of taking a sabbatical or just walking away from Formula 1 altogether. So it's it's interesting. I think if I was racing point, in order to sign Vettel, which I like the idea of, I would want to see that he is absolutely keen to do it, that he really wants to do it. Not that he's sort of thinking, oh, maybe I'll do it, maybe I'll not. I don't think Vettel's the kind of person who'll do it for money anyway because that's not really the way he works. He's not he's not somebody who pursues every last, uh, every last penny he can get. But yeah, you'd want a clear statement of intent from uh, from uh, Vettel there, which which will be interesting. But obviously, this this drive situation has quite an impact on the rest of the, the driver market because obviously we're moving into the the lower reaches there. Now Vettel's not going to be driving for any of the other teams we're going to talk about, but Perez obviously you would think would want to try and stay on the grid if he can, and there's a, there's a realistic uh, possibility for him. Although he could look at doing something like IndyCar. There's been interest in IndyCar teams uh, before, and he could probably get his way into a, into a pretty decent seat with it with the backing he's got. So let, let's take a quick look at um, at what uh, this section I'm kind of calling Haas and half of Alfa Romeo. Um, so Scott, they're going to be choosing from whoever's left once all the rest have chosen their drivers. At Haas, both Kevin Magnussen and Roman Grosjean, they're not set for next year. At Alfa Romeo, we'll set the Ferrari-controlled seat aside for the moment. But then there's Kimi Raikkonen's position. He's on a second year of a two-year deal. Seems unlikely he'll continue. He's doing decently in the races, lacking a little bit of edge in, in qualifying. Um, but I think that whole Alfa Romeo driver lineup is perhaps not not necessarily flattering the car, should we say. So... Let's have a look at Haas first. What 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 do you think is going on there, and how does how does a potential Perez fit into these possibilities? I think if Haas aren't looking at trying to have negotiations with Perez or scope out that situation, and similarly are not in conversation already with Nico Hulkenberg, I think that team can't be taken seriously in Formula One anymore. Because as much as I like Grosjean and Magnussen from a sort of um, you really don't know what you're going to get from either of those two drivers. Both of them have the potential to be like absolutely stunning on their day. That's not. I don't. I don't see what that team gains from keeping them anymore. I think they're just both so erratic. They trade good weekends and bad weekends, and I think you want. I think you want more dependable operators. And what a dream team Perez and Hulkenberg could be for a team like Haas. You know, that's now looking for. Oh, actually. Because of the way the things have changed, new Concord budget caps coming in, all of this, maybe the next two or three years, we've got a little bit of a mini project to, to work on here. Perez and Hulkenberg have got nothing to lose to throw themselves into that. So I, I think that would be, that that strikes me as the most logical. Reprise the old Force India lineup of a few years ago. If, if memory serves, that was pretty effective for, for Force India. So... That's what I'd be doing from a from a Haas perspective. I I like Grosjean and Magnussen. I think Grosjean especially had sort of engenders a bit of loyalty within the team, but he's also an incredibly divisive and uh, well, not divisive so much as I think he's a very uh, emotionally um, provocative character, shall we say, because of his ridiculous peaks and and, and trust. So. Yeah, I, I I think Perez and and Hulkenberg would be absolutely top of my shopping list if I was Gunter the um, thing with that is, and I, I agree completely, if you're a midfield team, if you're a Haas, and if you're Alfa Romeo too, you, you try for Hulkenberg and you definitely try for Perez. Now, if I'm Perez, do I go to Haas or Alfa Romeo, even if there are no other options, or do I just do something else? Now, that's, a that's I think, a bigger question, because I recall Perez talking about his current Racing Point Aston Martin contract as his last Formula One contract, and the sort of the understanding that if 
if he can't find his way into regular podium and win contention after everything he's done, then, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe that's enough. And if he ends up booted out of this seat at Racing Point slash Aston Martin at this team that he's been through the midfield with and that is now emerging thanks to a pretty clever design decision, but also the fact that I think everyone here believes that it's a team that's fantastic value for money and now it has a lot more money. Uh, it's a team that can accomplish great things in the future. And if Perez is booted out of it, just as it's about to cross into that genuine top team territory, that would be, that would be very hard to take. If I was Sergio Perez, for me, that would probably be like, okay, maybe I go some, somewhere else because this was my top seat. It's taken. I'm not getting another one. Maybe that's it. Maybe I've had a good career. But I don't know how he's thinking. But if I was him, that would be that would be my line of thought. Yeah, that's a fair point. You probably feel you, you've done all the legwork. You've got this opportunity. And then it, it's taken away from you. But certainly, there's always that appeal of staying on the grid. It'll depend what his backers uh, want to do as well, partly. I think it's actually quite difficult to tell, different, tell between Haas and Alfa Romeo. I feel that Alfa Romeo has got the greater ultimate potential as a team which isn't a very controversial thing to say, given the nature of Haas. It is dependent on, on Ferrari, obviously. And also there's there's question marks about Haas's situation. They're a funny team, Haas, because that Magnussen-Grosjean combination is is a very odd one in that they, they, they have characteristics they want from cars that are, are somewhat competing. So you'll have situations where... There have been times where Grosjean will complain, oh, the car's got an understeer problem. Then you ask Magnussen, he says, no, it's not got an understeer problem because they've just got different characteristics they want from it. I think they're not necessarily the most uh, constructive partnerships to have together in, in, in that regard. So you'd be looking at changing it. They'd have taken Hulkenberg probably last year if it was a more cost-effective option. But I think with the, the question marks about the future of that team, they just went cheap and conservative and... They seem to be trying to spend as little as possible at the moment just to keep the thing on uh, on tick over. And ultimately, eighth is the best they can manage in the Constructors' Championship this year anyway with, with the competitiveness and no upgrades to to come. But I personally would, if I was Hulkenberg or Perez and I was thinking, well, do I go to Haas or Alfa Romeo, then I'd probably go for Alfa Romeo, even though I've been very disappointed with the progress that team uh, has made in, in, in recent times. But it's got the greater ultimate potential because Haas is only going to get you so far, but... Is Perez really gonna? You know, seven years he's been at uh, he's been at Racing Point slash Force India, so he's put in the legwork. Does he really want to put? You know, if he does put another seven years legwork, then it's gonna he's gonna be an old man in F one terms by the, by the time it uh, it pays off. But are there any other contenders for these uh, for these seats that spring to mind? Obviously, it's complicated by the potential of drivers with resources. There are some drivers in F two who've got money behind them. I guess the obvious one is Nikita Mazepin, who we know has got good good money behind him it looks like he should probably get the super license points he needs um, he doesn't need anything particularly spectacular in the championship to do that and then of course there's question marks because we know that in the past um, the, the Uralkali the, the family firm as it were has has looked at buying F1 teams in the past what what do you make of that Scott do you think we should expect Mazepin to become quite a big figure in the uh, in the F1 driver market um yeah I mean I would probably have been much more interested to see how he shakes things up had the identity of the Williams buyer been slightly different. I think we were all sort of wondering whether or not that would be finally uh, Mazepin Senior's opportunity to, to, to own a Formula One team. And I think it's a slightly refreshing uh, change of pace that we the, the latest big money people to come into Formula One and take charge of a team aren't doing it to put their son in a Formula One car, which is, uh, which is useful. Um, but I think that it does have a bit of an air of inevitability about it, doesn't it? That, that Mazepin is coming. The senior and junior are, are on their way, and um, junior will have uh, will have a super license at the, at the end of this year. And that has always, to me, been the the only remaining obstacle to to Mazepin or Uralkali or Val. How do you say? Is it Uralkali and Ural Uralchem? Uralchem? How do you say that? Do you want the Russian version? Uh, I don't mind. Uralkali, uh, Uralkim, I think. Okay, Uralkem. Okay, let's say that. Whoever it is, but it, don't forget that the the company, Mazepin's company, was among those trying to buy the Force India or the Force India assets and lost out to Racing Point. They're still planning, they're still going to court 
uh, over that entire process and they still want to invest in, in, in Formula One. I've spoken to representatives from that organisation this year and they, they are dead keen. So I think the only thing stopping them going absolute hell for leather to make that happen was whether or not Nikita would actually have a super licence. Um, but it's now a formality. There are, I think, three or four different ways that he can get the super licence this year and he will may well... I, it, depending on exactly what ridiculous areas of bonus super license points he is eligible for, he may already be eligible for one. I don't actually know. Um, he's very, very close, basically. So I think that's it. I think that that unlocks it. This is the cork in the bottle, shall we say, the super license, and that's being removed. So I think if a Haas, if Gene Haas decides, okay, I've committed to the Concord, I've made my entry a lot more viable, uh, and I can sell it for a little bit more money now, he might still decide this is his opportunity to get out and maybe recoup some of the money that he's had to pump into Formula 1 and lost. And then I think you, someone like the, the, the Mazepins of this world, they've got to be first in, in, in line for that. And um, If and when that happens, that puts Mazepin Jr. front and centre in the driver market. And, yeah, and we have a similar situation to the one we've got at Racing Point where the ostensibly the obvious decision based on performance and a competitive point of view is... Uh, it, it's it's made a bit more murky because you have some uh, some nepotism potentially in, in the mix to take one of the seats. Haas is a tricky team to value, isn't it? Because you're not buying very much. You're buying a technical partnership with Ferrari. You're buying a a, a supply deal with with Delara. You know, there's good people at that team, but it's it, it, it's a it's sort of a shell of a team, should we say? Like if you're looking between what you're getting with, say, a Williams versus a Haas. Two very, very different things. Haas can't stand on its own two feet. If it hasn't got Ferrari, if it hasn't got Delara, then it's really got very, very little other than a team that can run the car. So that's an interesting one. But let, we should talk a little bit, Val, about Mazepin as a driver. Um, we should remember, he finished second in, in Formula 3 in 2018. He's won a feature race in, in F2. So he's he's a very capable driver. There's, there's ability there. Although before you get into talking a little bit about him, can you just confirm the correct pronunciation of his surname, please? I mean, again, Mazepin's fine, but yes, it's it's Nikita Mazepin, but Mazepin's fine. I don't I don't think he minds very much. I I think he's a pretty bilingual guy. Um, so the thing about Mazepin is, honestly, he's been pretty good this season. Like it's 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 easy to knock billionaires' kids when they're in junior formulae, but and it's fun too. It is fun, and Lord knows I've done a lot of it. But and I've done it during Mazepin's previous season he didn't really massively impress in his first season of f2 but he was a very convincing runner-up to the late Antoine bear in gp3 in 2018 to the point where honestly i thought he was probably the quickest driver on the grid or at least the quickest driver car combination with him and the dominant art team um and this year with with the uh with the high-tech outfit that his, his father's invested in um, he's looked really good. Uh, he's had a penalty the, this past race that's cost him a few points, but he he keeps moving forward in race trim. He's qualifying okay. He's 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 taken a huge step compared to last year. Whether that's enough to make him viable for you know a Formula One promotion on pure merit, taking away his you know obviously his backing, probably not. But he's definitely not hopeless and that's that's been clear for much of his career because i think he was a world karting championship runner-up or something like that at some point he's got in in flashes during his career he's he's looked genuinely very good hasn't come consistently enough and it's it's required a fair bit of investment but uh i i wouldn't massively turn up my nose if he's to end up on a formula one grid next year He's also done a little bit of F1 testing as well. I think he's got about nine days worth, mostly with Force India uh, and Racing Point. But it, he did it with um, a day with Mercedes last year as well. Obviously, that was a, I'm sure that was a, an, an economically driven decision. But he was, he, he's absolutely capable of, of driving and racing a, a Formula One car. So he's not, he's not kind of going to be an old school pay driver who's going to be seconds off the pace at the back or anything there's a there's a quality driver in there and that's what the, that's an example of what the super license points are there for to for a driver to be able to show they hit a certain uh, a certain threshold um let's look at the most probably the most complicated and i would argue interesting seat val now this is the ferrari controlled alfa romeo one antonio giovanazzi's in that now so he's going to be a contender to stay on but also there i 
about a quarter of the F2 fields Ferrari contracted, but there's there's three who are looking very interesting. Obviously, Mick Schumacher, everyone knows about. He's having a a handy season in F2, although not quite got the results he's wanted to. Robert Schwartzman as well, we know about. And also, the guy who's leading them all is, is Callum Eilert, who's kind of the forgotten Ferrari junior coming into this year. All four of those drivers have to be serious contenders for that seat. So... How do you see that battle of the three F two guys versus uh, versus Giovinazzi? With, with Giovinazzi, I wonder if it, if it's possible for him to move over to the non Ferrari controlled seat because obviously he's he's not been far off Kimi Raikkonen this season at all in terms of in terms of one lap pace. He's actually probably been a bit better in terms of race pace, not so much. But he's he would not be a terrible choice for that team's designated non-Ferrari driver, although obviously probably not as as good as a Hulkenberg or something like that, or a Perez. Um, but if, if, if he hasn't proven enough of that, then I also don't really see a reason for Ferrari to keep him in that seat, given how, in, in, in their seat, given how the three Ferrari juniors in Formula 2 are doing. Obviously, it's a it's a Ferrari 1-2 in F2 right now, with Eilat leading Schwartzman. Eilat's in his second year, Schwartzman's in his first year. Eilat's pretty obviously the quickest guy in that series right now when it comes to one lap pace, just, just blisteringly fast. Doesn't always quite come together for him on race trim, but he's he's in that line of Formula 2 GP2 champions. I think the recent Formula 2 GP2 champions we've had, they've pretty much always been the quickest guy, the guy who has the best pace, the guy who has the best one lap pace, and Callum Eilat is that. Um, his current campaign reminds me a bit of when Pierre Gasly won the GP2 title in that it was extremely evident that he was the fastest guy out there, but he'd, he'd find new and inventive ways to throw points in the bin. Eilat isn't quite doing that, but recently, this latest round in Barcelona, he was well on course to win the race, and I think there was a late safety car and the way pit stops and stuff shaken out had shaken out, he ended up, I think, second or third on the route, and he got basically beaten up pretty badly in uh, um, in wheel-to-wheel combat, ended up finishing fifth in a race in which he was by far easily the fastest. Um, but still, you know, if, 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 if he dominates the championship, if he goes on to dominate it from here in as a second year in Formula 2, I'd, I'd, I'd say that's enough for Formula 1. But then again... The thing with Schwartzman, who's now his main rival, is Schwartzman has had a great start to the season, yet he was qualifying terribly. He was just he was he was it's his racecraft and ability to go through the pack and ability to seemingly manage the Pirelli tires that that bailed him out of it. And then that sort of seemed to dry up for a couple of weekends a little bit. But now his qualifying looks to be sorted. He was second on the grid in Barcelona, which is by far his best qualifying effort of the season. If he can maintain that, and if he either wins the title or runs sophomore Islet close, well, you want to you want to go with a rookie who's performing on a similar level to sophomore who's in his first year and doing that kind of thing. But then, of course, there's also Schumacher, who I don't think it'll offend anyone to say is the been the least impressive of the three sophomore driver currently fifth in the standings. Uh, had some bad luck, but also doesn't hasn't really shown the same out-and-out pace as Eilat or the same uh, epic racecraft as, Schumacher, uh, as, as, as Schwartzman, his Prima teammate. Um, but with Schumacher, obviously, he's a Schumacher. And, oh boy, a lot of people in Formula 1 would want a Schumacher on the grid. And, you know, that's going to count for a lot. I think Mattia Benotto was quoted recently as saying that the obvious next step for Schumacher is F1. I agree with that in some circumstances. I don't think I agree with that in the world with Eilat and Schwartzman, but if, I don't know. I don't. It's If you make a decision purely on performance, then he probably needs another year. If you don't, then then that obviously goes to him. It's obvious and logical from a numerical point of view. He's won in Formula 3. He's now in Formula 2. So Mick's got to go to Formula 1 next, hasn't he? But I think... I if he gets that that Ferrari Alfa Romeo seat, I can't wait to hear how they justify it because there is no competitive justification at the moment for him getting that seat over two other Ferrari Driver Academy people in Formula Two, let alone Giovinazzi still being being in there at the moment. I wouldn't take Mick 
over the other two FTA drivers, I, I, I wouldn't bin off Giovinazzi for him either. And I, I should say, because I've been pretty harsh on Mick, so I should caveat it and sort of say, he's clearly, he's proven in the past couple of years that he is a really good racing driver. And he's not, he's, he will not be a disgrace in Formula One. He, he, he will be a solid Grand Prix driver. I have no doubt about that, but everything is in context and the context of if he gets a 2021 seat right now and the form book in F1 doesn't, in F2 for the rest of this season doesn't change dramatically, yet Schumacher wins over Eilat and Schwartzman, it's going to leave a sour taste for me, clearly for you, Scott, and I think for a lot of people. They have to choose the best option to justify what they're trying to do with that Ferrari Academy program. You know, they want another another Charles Leclerc or another another Jules Bianchi. So you have to pick your your best uh, your best choices. I imagine Ferrari are scratching their heads over this one because they could have seen the, the Mick Schumacher versus Schwartzman thing coming potentially a mile off, but then Callum Eilert has created this huge curveball with with his performances and confused the whole thing. I wouldn't be surprised, given that complexity, if Giuliano Alessi suddenly wins the next six races just to give them a give them a really complicated headache. I'd have a bit more faith in Armstrong suddenly yes. turning around and, and being mega, to be honest. Yeah, he's the other <laughs> than Alessi. He's the other Ferrari junior who's uh, yeah got got real ability as well. So it's a really interesting situation. I think probably it is the time because if if you look at that seat as a training seat. The question Ferrari have to ask is, is Antonio Giovinazzi a future Ferrari works team driver? Probably not. I think he could be a, a great servant to them as a, as a test driver, simulator driver. Probably, as I've said before, drive many races for AF Corsa in uh, in sports cars. But maybe, I find Giovinazzi frustrating because he's, he's genuinely good. He is quick, but there's, there's still just little areas here and there that just creep in i think we've kind of seen roughly what he's he's got to offer I, I wouldn't object to him continuing but i don't really see what's in it for ferrari but then you've got the next question of is you know if they put mick schumacher in what is their reasoning for doing it you know they may have some belief that he's he's got that he's got some magic in him that'll that'll shown in, in formula one and like you said val he's he's been good He's he's been a very good driver in Formula Three. He's performing decently in in F two and and could uh, could pick up this year. So it's it's a really kind of complicated uh, situation for for that team to to decide what they're doing. And I imagine the 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 Alpha team themselves will be uh, watching with interest because they want the best available driver. And of course, we should also remember that when Callum Eilert tested for that team last year in Spain, he had a massive shunt at the end of the end of the day, which didn't endear him to the uh, to the team, but. Yeah, you, you've got to go on based on performance. The problem with Callum Eilert in his career is he's always been very fast, but he's been error-prone. This year he's been fast and he's been stringing together a championship lead. He's had one notable error in the race when he spun after thwacking a curve at, at Silverstone. But other than that, it's it's been good. So, uh, yeah, this is this is actually really, really, really uh, interesting. I think it'll be a while before we check that out. Just just while we're on Alfa Romeo, does anyone want to make the case for, for Kimi Raikkonen staying on? properly in that seat because he he's he's a funny driver because he's i don't think he's getting the absolute best out of that car but he's, he keeps turning in just sort of nice solid dependable race drives and we know still his feedback etc is still very very good i just don't think he's got the edge of the pace i don't i don't see anyone clamoring to make a case for uh for kimmy now is it at 40 should it be uh over and out i mean i can i can try to make a case for kimmy in that i mean going by the latest spanish grand prix that was obviously his his drive of the season and I mean, it's it's not as if that Alpha car is an obvious points contender right now. So it's 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 not as if continuing to have Kimi on board costs him anything apart from probably a pretty decent salary. I I don't know what he gets out of it. And honestly, listening to some of his interviews, he he sounds frustrated. He does not sound happy with where the team is right now. Which I mean, either. If he cares, and I imagine he cares, then I don't. I don't see why he wouldn't just pack up after this season. But he's doing a diligent job. He hasn't down tools, certainly. But again, with Alpha, I think the first, the bigger question is whether he wants to continue in this situation, and the second question is whether Alpha think they can find somebody better. Yeah, and I think Alfa Romeo probably, if they didn't have him under two years contract, might well have gone for a Hulkenberg for this year anyway. So. Yeah, that, that that could be a pretty amazing career for for Kimi Räikkönen. He can still do it at a decent level at uh, at forty, but you know he's still in the mix. So you uh, you you never know. But I think if you're yeah if you're Alfa Romeo, you want the best 
if you're going to have Kimi in one seat, you want the best young driver. You want the next Charles Leclerc or someone in the other seat to really wring the car's neck. Um, just before we finish, Val, is there anyone else looming large on your F1 radar? We've obviously mentioned lots of them, but anybody in junior single seaters? And I'm, I'm going to cast it open. You can you can throw in anyone, even lower down the ladder, if there's someone who's been who, who we just think we should be keeping an eye on um, in recent uh, in recent times. Yeah, I think I, I think I have four or five names that we haven't touched upon yet. Uh, the first one being. So Christian Lungard, the, pers- the, the, the person that lots of people said Renault offended by taking Alonso over him, is not is not quite ready for Formula One or anything like that. And he had a pretty bad last round at Barcelona. But apart from that, honestly, he's been he's been great as a rookie. I've been massively impressed with Christian Lungard, and especially considering that in the other ART car, the Ferrari Junior Armstrong, his form just has gone off the cliff completely. He's turned from a a decent Formula Two driver to a Formula Two backmarker in the span of a, you know, one one weekend basically, but but Lungard's he's been featuring up there and it's a it's a it's no small feat given that you know he has a rookie teammate he's it's his first year in the series I think he's making a genuine case for being a a, a future Formula One driver so that that's my that's my one guy from from F two um, F three wise obviously right now it's shaping up to be a Prima title fight between Oscar Piastri, the Renault Junior, and Logan Sargent, the Nothing Junior. Uh, Piastri has had some qualifying issues, but he's he's been very nice to watch in the races. He started the Barcelona sprint in fifth, and by in a few corners he was first. It was fantastic. It was a great watch. He, he gets the elbows out. He's got serious pace. Uh, if he wins this this year's F3 title, then that'll confirm the title in Formula Renault from the year before as, you know, him showing genuine Formula One potential. And Sargent's an interesting one because he's, you know, he was a karting star. He's an American. Uh, he's the best American prospect we have and the best American prospects we had on the European Junior Single Seater Ladder for a long, long time. But his, his open wheel career hasn't quite matched the karting heights until now. Now he looks really fast for Prima. Now he's putting together a F3 title challenge in a in a title caliber car if you know if he keeps doing that then Gunther Steiner is going to start facing more questions about why they don't take an american driver and you know he's he's dismissed bringing anybody in from indycar in the past but uh, sergeant's going to be harder to dismiss if he carries this form through to the rest of the season and then to formula 2 i think you know we might be looking at our next american in f1 in him um also in f3 of the many red bull juniors in it Liam Lawson has massively picked up the the New Zealander, uh, so there's there's a few Red Bull juniors in that category, and you, you get the feeling that not all of them will last into next year. And I was, despite Lawson's accolades, despite you know his previous Toyota Racing Series title and runner up in F4, I honestly I was starting to have doubts whether he has a longer term future with Red Bull. Going into the season, he lost on his second appearance in the Toyota Racing Series. He lost the title to Igor Fraga who then got hired by Red Bull. So sort of led you wondering, has Red Bull is Red Bull replacing him like that? But he's been he's been really good in F3 all of a sudden. He's qualifying well, he's racing well, he's the next best behind the two main title contenders. Uh so it 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 could happen for Lawson after all and I'm I'm delighted to see it cuz he's obviously a talented kid. Outside of the Formula 1 support F2 F3, I think the the obvious one to mention is the in Formula Renault, there's an 18 Spanish karting, 18 year old Spanish karting graduate named David Vidalis, who maybe hung around karting a bit longer than you'd expect from somebody with his karting pedigree. But this year is his first move in into junior single seaters, and he made a late switch to the Renault series from the regional European series. He made his first appearance in the second round. Was it Imola? I think. And in his first appearance, two poles, two wins. And it's a strong series. And so if you're doing that in your first weekend of car racing, you're serious business. You're like, that's honestly, that's shades of that 2014 with Max Verstappen, Charlie Clare's open wheel debuts. That's that's serious. I can't wait to see where he goes from here, but I'm I'm really excited. Yeah, that was uh, that was very much uh, unexpected. And Sometimes you get someone making a debut that really grabs the attention, and that one uh, that one got plenty of uh, plenty of attention. Obviously, some way off Formula One, but 
with so many junior driver schemes around the place and so many teams liking to sign up young drivers, I'm sure there'll be people who'll be uh, who'll be taking a, a serious uh, a serious look at him. Scott, have you got uh, any anyone exciting you in the junior categories? We've mentioned quite a lot of people there, so you're 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 picking from uh, from uh, the the scraps now. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't throw any extra names into the mix. The the thing that I picked up on, particularly over the course of the two Silverstone weekends, was it's it's a bit similar to the point Val made about Logan Sargent and you know the having an American prospect. I'm really impressed by the by by the range of nationalities uh, of drivers that are impressing on the the the, the especially the F1 ladder um, because. I think it was it was at the first or the second Silverstone weekend where there were like a dozen different nationalities represented across the podium, the podiums in F2 and F3. And I uh, ultimately nationality shouldn't matter. But I, given that this is a world championship, we go to so many, we should be going to so many different countries, but obviously this season's a little bit different. And obviously all the different teams have got different things that they're, that they're aiming for. I can see it. I see it only as a positive that you've got some really, really good um, Australian and, and, and New Zealand talents. Uh, in F3, I've been really encouraged to, to see the likes of like Lawson and Piastri and seeing actually guys that could get, give you a reason to watch. They're actually quite exciting drivers. And you've got Americans, Japanese, guys like Guan Yu Zhou, so China's represented as well. I think it's just a really good mix. And I think that helps. I think that the more interest you have across various major countries, the better. And there's a lot of countries there that haven't had a, an F1 representative for a really long time. So to have such promising prospects, I think can only be a good thing. Yeah, certainly. The the more the merrier, really, in terms of uh, many countries you can uh, you can draw into it. So that is a uh, is a positive. Uh, well, I think we've we've covered the driver markets pretty well. Obviously, if there's any news breaking in terms of who's going where, it'll be on the race.com website. And don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read on there from all of us. Obviously, by the time you're listening to this, there will be all our Indy 500 post race coverage, etc., will be up there. I had a little bit of a look at Formula One Class C. That's a piece that should uh, should be coming up fairly shortly. And there'll be a piece coming up in the coming week with Callum Eilis, actually, I spoke to the other day, about his progress. Uh, So do head to the website, check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, which tells classic F1 stories. Our latest podcast on that has looked back at the Honda works project that was abandoned with scott mitchell and gary anderson uh, appearing on on that podcast so do subscribe to that and check out our videos on youtube as well we'll be back next week with all the action from the belgian grand prix (laughs) 